Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. And today we have with us John Grabowski. He is Ordinary Professor of Moral Theology and Ethics at the Catholic University of America. He's authored or co-authored seven books and many scholarly and popular articles. He served three times as a theological advisor to the USCCB. In 2009, Pope Benedict XVI appointed him to the Pontifical Council for the Family along with his wife. In 2015... He was appointed by Pope Francis to serve as an expert at the 2015 Synod on the Family. Today we'll be discussing his book, Unraveling Gender, the Battle Over Sexual Difference. Welcome to the show, John. Um, Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I guess to lay a foundation for today, and my time as a convert, uh, I never imagined I'd be reading a book on this topic. Uh, (laughs) What led you to write it? Um, Yeah, well, I mean... I've always kind of been interested in um, the human person, I guess. Um, my doctoral dissertation, like 33 years ago, was actually on uh, the human person and sexual difference or gender. Um, and so it's always been an interest of mine. Um, and it's something I've written about and taught uh, about over the years. But just watching the culture literally kind of unravel before our eyes um, and people's, um, you know, just growing confusion on this issue. We mm-hmm. we have Supreme Court nominees who can't answer the question, what is a woman, or at least won't answer the mm-hmm. question, what is a woman? So watching, just watching the, the kind of the dominoes fall, I just had an overwhelming sense that this is the time to go back to that research and kind of update it and make it more available. Mm-hmm. And you kind of mentioned it there in your reply, but as Dr. Janet Smith mentioned in her endorsement of your book, you were thinking about the question of gender identity long before it was cool, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Um, Long before um, some other folks were, I guess. Right, right. So I guess in your time pondering the topic, uh, what do you feel has led to what seems to be what appears to be a rapid acceleration of this insanity when it comes to gender identity that we are seeing today? 
Oh, I, I think it's kind of a perfect storm of things um, within the culture. The, um, the, I mean, just to mention a couple of things, the, the sexual revolution, which has just so destabilized the family. And, and so, um, as Mary Eberstadt has argued in some of her work, so uh, left people with this profound sense of they don't know who they are especially if they come from a fractured family, the question of who am I, where do I belong? Um, Mary actually traces our, the rise of our identity politics to that, but I also think it feeds directly into this question um, because people are, they, they don't know who they are. They don't know their own identity because they don't have that sense of belonging to a family, a church, a community that they used to. And then I think the other really big factor that has played such a role is the ex the expansion of the internet and the fact that we can kind of create di new digital identities for ourselves, mm. right? We can we can create identities, we can change them, we can manipulate them. So given that online world that a lot of people inhabit, it becomes easy to think about our bodies as just another screen on which to project an identity. So I think factors like that kind of coming together and then the fact that these ideas have been out there in the culture has just kind of accelerated them and accelerated people's exposure to them. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the book, you refer to the situation as the battle of our age, and there's probably hundreds of words I could use to describe it, critical, dire, on and on. But how pivotal is this situation to our society? I mean, it's, it's, it's as, it's as foundational or pivotal as you can get, right? Because I mean, the church tells us that the family is the foundation for human society. It's the, it's the first cell within the body of Christ. So if the family is undone and gender ideology, make no mistake, as the church has been telling us, is an attack on the family. If you erase sexual difference, you erase the basis for the family. Um, so this is, it, it, you, you cannot overestimate the, the, the gravity of, of this struggle that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. uh, to just answer the question, what is male and female? Right. Um, you know, why did God create us male and female in his image? You know, what I found probably most interesting as I went through the book, and this was early on in the book, um, you point this out, is that most of the people pushing this agenda are not actually LBGTQ plus themselves. Mm -hmm. And in fact, those who identify as such just really want to be left alone. Can you give us your thoughts on this? I mean, yeah, I'm many people who um, struggle with uh, gender dysphoria or a discordant gender identity or maybe deal with something like an intersex condition, they, they're they not particularly interested in this ideology or promoting it. They just want to find a way to live their lives with some measure of peace and happiness. Um that the activists who are kind of on the front lines here are are and and actively promoting this in the media in um all in public policy and law are people who have other sets of interests i think um and uh yeah see see this as a way to get a to accomplish a particular set of goals or a particular agenda um 
So when we use language like transgender, we really need to be careful because um, there are people who have who deal with gender discordance, who deal with um, things that kind of destabilize their gender identity that that are not necessarily people who would describe themselves as transgender in the sense of, yes, this is how I identify myself. This I'm part of promoting and spreading this kind of set of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I guess before we go too far here, it, it bears um, saying and needs to be pointed out that we're, that we're not here to bash those who identify as LBGTQ plus or, or anything like that because they deserve mercy. The church teaches that, correct? Absolutely. Every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Every human being has the same human dignity and worth as and is entitled to love, respect, compassion. Um, so the battle is not against human beings. The battle is against a distorted set of ideas that actually give a false path to what human flourishing and happiness look like. So the battle is a spiritual one. We're, we're fighting against a distorted picture of the human person and a distorted picture of how we how we can flourish as human beings. Yeah. And another thing you raise in the book, um, sometimes when it comes to John Paul II's theology of body, we kind of focus on one aspect of it. But he also wrote a lot about gender ideology and that what he called was yet another symptom of the culture of death. Can you explain that a bit to us? Sure. Um, it, the theology of the body is, I mean, sometimes it gets, um, in the effort to kind of make it more accessible or popularize, it gets uh, kind of treated superficially to, well, this is just a way to talk about sex. And it's much more than that, because the theology of the body is really an anthropology. It's an understanding of the human person in light of uh, the data of scripture, right? It's a commentary on scripture to help us better understand who we are as human beings. The fact that our existence is a gift, that our bodies are a gift, that the maleness and femaleness of our bodies, their sexual differentiation is an intrinsic part of that gift and enables us to give ourselves in love in, in particular ways. So yeah, the theology of the body offers a much more robust um, and adequate understanding of who the human person is, how our bodies and their sexual character is integral to pursuing happiness and love and fulfillment. Um, and it's one that not only coheres with what we're told in scripture, it coheres with what science tells us too, at least science that hasn't been hijacked by an ideology. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a very good point that comes out often in the book is science being hijacked for another purpose. Um, you know, yeah, played I mean, out well in that Supreme Court um, justice hearing, I think. Sure, sure. I mean, just to give one example of just how 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 off the science is on scientific grounds here. I mean, proponents of gender ideology say that gender transitioning is the best way for people who are dealing with discordant gender or gender dysphoria, um, even though 
all of the studies that have been done, medical and scientific, show that people who fully transition continue to suffer from psychological problems, actually a host of physiological problems. We're just learning about some of the negative impacts of going on cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers, especially at young ages. Um, the fact that people who have fully transitioned, uh, some studies have found are 19 to 20 times higher more likely to commit suicide. That doesn't look like this is evidence-based medicine indicating a path toward wholeness and mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So just on medical and scientific grounds, this ideology fails and it fails badly. Yeah. Um, that, that was a very good explanation, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much more we could say about that. Um, can you give us a little insight um, in chapter two, you refer to this misguided medicine and the idea that people consider gender, certain people consider gender simply as a role. Sure, sure. Um, so, so for, yeah, for, for some people, gender is, I mean, postmodern philosophers like Judith Butler will say that gender is just a performance, but then so is sex and so is the body. We perform a gender, we perform a sex. There's no, in other words, there's no intrinsic givenness to our bodies and what they mean. Again, to go back to um, an image I used earlier, it's like our bodies are a screen on which we're projecting a virtual identity. And so if we're mm -hmm. unhappy with the identity that our bodies project, we can use technology, in this case, um, medical and uh, medical technology to alter the display, to alter what we're displaying. Um, so gender is just a role that I inhabit by making my body appear a particular way um, within within my life, within mm -hmm. my my circle of, of friends and acquaintances. But again, that's. <laughs> We, we know, as, as we were just discussing, we know medically and scientifically that's, that's just false. And there are consequences when we try to use harsh chemical and surgical techniques to override and overwrite um, the givenness of our bodies. And of course, transitioning procedures don't change a person's genetic sex. They don't change... Um, they're, uh, a person who has transitioned has to stay on cross-sex hormones their entire life. So their body is actively resisting um, this attempt to override and overwrite. So to think, of, to think of sex and the body as just things we can manipulate, the way we can manipulate an image on a screen is just, it's disconnected from reality, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's trying to impose... Uh, to harness technologies and medicine, which is supposed to be about actually helping people flourish and and actually treating um, disease and discomfort and suffering in ways that lead to human flourishing. Um, we're misusing medicine, we're misusing, and we're misunderstanding who we are in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I hate to say this, but I'm going to. So technology, I think, seems to be somewhat the root of the problem here. I mean, things have helped advance this cause as we went along, but the ease of going onto your Facebook account and picking one of 400 different gender identities to call sure. yourself that day and then being able to communicate 
freely. I hate to sound like Opie on on Andy Griffith's show, but Paul, we didn't. <laughs> when you were in Mayberry, you didn't worry what happened across the country. You didn't have a way to communicate that way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's that's where we're at today. The, the, the ease of communication has inflamed this. Uh, it, it definitely has. It definitely has. I mean, I think this is, I, again, I think technology, I, I think there have been three huge destabilizations of uh, the family and of through that, through of personal identity over the last couple of centuries, the industrial mm-hmm. revolution, the sexual revolution and the ongoing technology revolution. And you're right. Technology is the thing that is really kind of um, fueling this fire. Um, at the moment and and creating the illusion that we can we can recreate ourselves um, just as we can when we go into a virtual world. Mm-hmm. And those those other two destabilization periods you talk about, I want to touch on those a bit. The one's the industrial revolution. We often look at the industrial revolution and how to stabilize the family. It's talked about a lot in that man is you program in year one. Um, yes about how it took the male out of the home, took the father figure out of the home and the guidance that the father had there, you know, on the farm as a family was working together. And that was really the first step towards where we're at today. Yes. Not. Yeah. I'm, yes, that's true. But I think there's a further impact of the industrial revolution that we don't often think about as much. And that is because the industrial revolution outsources work from the home work is no longer done on the family farm or in the family mm-hmm. business that changes the way people think about children because now every child born into a home into a family is another mouth to feed an economic drag on the family's well-being instead of as scripture says a blessing mm-hmm. right it's gotten much harder for us to think about children as blessings people think about children as expenses that they can't afford. Um, And that's one of the fruits, one of the unintended fruits of the Industrial Revolution. That led to the search for more and better contraceptive technology, which helps launch launch the sexual revolution and take it to new heights in the 20th century. So those three destabilizations, they're kind of one interlocking hole. That's that's the perfect storm I was talking about Mm -hmm. earlier. And the sexual revolution, I mean, that anybody that thought anything good was going to come out of that is, is out of their mind, really. Um, <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, but you had that the new focus of freedom that really this current situation we're in just catapulted. It, it used that as a trampoline, so to speak. Um, sure, sure. The sexual revolution took what had in had been for previous generations and previous culture a single reality marriage and family you got married you engaged in sexual union with your spouse and then that enabled you to receive the blessing of children what it's one thing it's turned those into three separate dissociable parts you can have sex without the need to get married because contraception promises consequence free sex backstopped by abortion if your contraception fails. You can get married and have an intentionally childless marriage if you choose to. And now with the help of assisted reproductive technologies, you can have children without either getting married or having sex. We have asexual reproduction in the laboratory. So what had been a single reality now 
completely dissociated from one another. And again, it has so fractured the family through extramarital sex, through divorce, through abortion, through all of these these um, things that are plaguing us, that it's really created this profound um, lack of identity, for lack of a better word, in so many people. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Where, where do I belong? Where do I come from? And gender ideology purports to give a set of answers to those questions, easy answers. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, it's really interesting that, you know, decades ago, the only the primary group of people showing up at, at gender transitioning clinics were middle-aged men, who were unhappy with their life, and so, in a sense, this was their midlife crisis. I was just going to say, instead of buying decided, a car, they decided to go there. <laughs> Um, they decided they wanted to be a she. Yeah. Um, so they would go and go to one of these clinics and have themselves re, you know, cosmetically remade. Today, in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a huge shift. And now the primary people showing up at gender clinics, gender transitioning clinics, are young people, mm-hmm. particularly young women, right? Many mm-hmm. of whom would probably show up on the autism spectrum. But so young people who are walking around saying, who am I, where do I belong? I don't, something doesn't feel right with me. And again, what teenager or young adult doesn't feel like that at some point in their life? But gender ideology says, oh, it's because you're in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. You were given the wrong sex assigned at birth. And all you have to do is go through these procedures and we can resolve all of that for you. So we're seeing this phenomenon of people who go through their whole life into adolescence and young adulthood with a what seems to be a stable gender identity. And then they come across this set of ideas and suddenly, no, I'm trans. And I've always been trans. And now they'll go back and re-describe their whole life and all the times they've ever felt unhappy and say, this is the reason why, because that's the script that they're given when they encounter this set of ideas. Mm-hmm. So there's an obvious answer to this, but the, the, the not so obvious answer is how to get out of it. <laughs> what is the role that the public school system has in all of this? <laughs> The public school system right now is part of the problem. Yeah. Right. Because a lot of what is supposed to be education and educational programs is, in fact, indoctrination Mm -hmm. into gender ideology Um, because public school systems have instituted programs like the purple unicorn to teach children that their gender identity is a complex set of factors involving sex assigned at birth, romantic attraction, sexual attraction, gender identity, all of these different things get wrapped up in this bundle. These programs were ostensibly created to cut down incidences of bullying against uh, gender nonconforming children. But what they're really doing is teaching children that that your gender, your sense of self has nothing to do with your body Mm -hmm. and your physical makeup. That's not education, that's indoctrination, right? And this is why many parents who were home during the pandemic and started listening to what their kids were being taught were horrified, which is why we've seen a huge spike in enrollment in Catholic schools and in homeschooling because uh, people do not want their kids being force-fed that 
gender Kool-Aid that they're getting in the public schools right now. Right. And it's even worse. We had we dealt with this locally a few weeks ago. The local YWCA had drag queen story time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of public libraries are doing this, right? Insane. Um, yeah. No, it's – and again, the, the, ostensibly it's, oh, we need to promote – um, toleration and awareness of diversity among children. But when you have men coming in dressed in drag who are reading children's stories, the moral of which is it's okay to be genderqueer and gender fluid because we're all exploring and gender is kind of an open-ended project. Again, this is an education. It's indoctrination. Mm-hmm. So the tough question, where do we go from here? <laughs> um yeah, I I think within the church, the, the strategy has to be twofold um, moving forward. One, I think this set of ideas needs to be confronted and defeated because ultimately it's a heretical set of ideas. I think it's 21st century Gnosticism enabled by technology. So um, just as the fathers of the church understood that part of preaching the gospel to the world around them is is defeating heresy, false ideas, whether they appear in the church or in the, you know, in the public square. Um, but second, the, the, we we need to, in trying to engage people who have been impacted by this ideology or people who are struggling with a gender discordant identity, they need. Uh, people who are willing to encounter them, listen to them, and to use Pope, one of Pope Francis's favorite words, accompany them, walk mm-hmm. with them, so that they can uh, they can find a place of welcome and friendship within the church, and hear when, once their guard comes down a little bit that you know what, there's a better path to your flourishing and happiness than what this set of ideas is trying to sell you. Um, but but you're not going to you're not if you just say, oh, those ideas are wrong. And here's why. If you try to refute, that's going to be understood by many people who have been impacted by this ideology as an attack on their identity. And they're going to respond angrily and defensively. Mm-hmm. Right. So Pope Francis's recommended model of evangelization as accompaniment, I think, really, really applies here. So the ideas need to be defeated. The people need to be loved and uh, welcomed. And that means we need to make our parishes places where gender discordant people can come and not feel like they're immediately rejected, judged, ostracized, but actually have people engage them and Mm -hmm. care about them. Right. So this is a challenge for lay people, for priests, for people doing ministry. Right to be willing to put ourselves out there and befriend people who have been wounded by the culture or wounded by this set of ideas. Mm-hmm. Fascinating book, John. Where can people find Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Difference? Um, they can find it at TAN Books if they go on the TAN website and um, type in Unraveling Gender. They cannot find it on Amazon because this book is not sold on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, big tech companies don't seem to be that enthusiastic about the project for some reason. Mm, the day the book came out, Tan tried to buy advertising on Facebook for the for the uh, book, and Facebook banned the ad hmm. because of the subject matter of the book. So 
that's that's the world in which we currently find ourselves indeed good old technology <laughs> yes <laughs> so john i want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and spending with us any closing thoughts um, my, I guess my one closing thought is, especially for parents out there, for grandparents, and especially for men, I would just encourage them and say, you can't sit this one out. This one's too important, mm-hmm. right? This is because it poses such a threat to our families and to the culture, which our families are the basis of. We've got to get informed and get engaged. Until next time.